Let's go on to your next patient. This is a 57-year-old woman who presented also after her routine colonoscopy. She had delayed it for seven years, but after her husband had his and no problems, she underwent her colonoscopy and unfortunately was found to have a invasive adenocarcinoma with sigmoid colon. She underwent surgery, and at the time of the removal, final stage of this to be a T3N0, poorly differentiated or grade 3 carcinoma. Initial pathology showed no lymphovascular invasion, but when we reviewed it at our multidisciplinary tumor board clinic, the pathologist pointed out some areas that certainly might be consistent with some lymphatic invasion. So this is a stage 2A patient who then is otherwise healthy, who came in recently, just in the last four weeks, to discuss her options for treatment. And as I was saying, you know, you always, this is about right pre-ASCO, and I knew there was going to be some data looking at molecular signatures for colon cancers, and so I kind of told her, well, here's the risk, this is what we're considering, but why don't we come back after ASCO, and we'll talk about it again. And she came back, we don't have any definitive answers from ASCO, but we talked about her risk, and her position was she was willing to do whatever it took to reduce the risk. Even though her risk was small compared to our node-positive patients, she saw the data, she looked at it, she understood that there was a benefit. And when we talked about the forms of chemo, whether it be 5-FU leucovorin alone or Zolota or Fulfox, her words, and again today, were, well, if I'm going to take chemotherapy, I'm going to take the chemotherapy that reduces my risk the most. And she was started this week on full fox chemotherapy in an adjuvant setting for this disease. I'm curious, do you use adjuvant online or any models to give patients numbers? You know, Neil, I have done a lot. I've sort of, in my own mind, have them all memorized now. So I haven't actually printed out recently these numbers, except as we were talking about today. I think I do it a lot for my older patients. Because when you take someone who's 70 or an 80 and has a lot of comorbid issues, and then you're really trying to find out, okay, what is the absolute benefit? And a patient is in a quandary about whether to take chemo, and they look at it and say, man, I only got a two or three absolute benefit because of my diabetes, my heart disease, blah, 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 blah. That I use often. I think in this young patient, I didn't actually print up her adjuvant online data though we talked about it today in this conversation, and she'll probably go home and print it up herself. So in putting her into adjuvant, would you put her in without high-risk features or with? I would, because of our tumor board reviewed, I would look at high-risk features. And so what numbers did you actually give her? I gave her probably anywhere between a 15 or 20% chance of a recurrence, her recurrence score in that range is what I labeled her at. And what about how much adjuvant therapy would decrease it? I told her basically a 5-FU-alone-based therapy may reduce that risk by a third, and a full-fox-based program may reduce that risk by up to 44%, 42 to 44%, thereabouts, maybe higher. So what kind of numbers would you give a patient like that, Axel? I think the recurrence risk is about 15 to 20%. That's about correct. I mean, we're looking at a stage 2A patient with the two risk factors we talked about is undifferentiated histology and this small lymphovascular invasion, which are probably not the strongest risk factors that we have. I mean, T4 for a stage 2 patient would be stronger. And let's say low number of lymph nodes probably would be stronger. She had 13 lymph nodes identified or perforation obstruction. So it's kind of a borderline high risk. That's what I would say. And the benefit she might have in terms of risk of recurrence. And there's a difference between risk of recurrence and overall survival because you might have benefit in terms of 
risk of recurrence, but not Im implication in terms of overall survival. I would have probably given her some 5% absolute benefit from 5 of few and 8% from when you really add 5 in terms of risk of recurrence against surgery alone. And whether the addition of oxaplatin really affects overall survival in the end is kind of very debatable with the recent long-term data from the Mosaic trial. But when I met the patient, I mean, she's one of those patients who take her own fate in her hand. I mean, she did research on the internet. She was very knowledgeable and she was one of those patients who made a very educated decision for herself in view of the available data in a situation where it's really a gray zone between no treatment to Folfox. And, you know, it's interesting about this issue of Folfox. There's a lot of investigators based on the mosaic data, although it doesn't really make that much sense to me, would say, well, there's no additional benefit by giving oxaliplatin in these patients. I mean, the additional benefit is in terms of when you look at the subgroup of high-risk patients. I mean, high-risk right, patients right. had a hazard ratio of 0.74 in terms of risk reduction for recurrence, disease-free survival, similar to stage 3 patients. So now they didn't translate into an overall survival benefit, which I think is important. So the uh, question is, would you ever consider delaying tumor recurrence as an value in itself. I mean, the FDA did it when they accepted disease-free survival as full regulatory endpoint, not as a surrogate for overall survival. And I see a point to that. Having said that, I mean, we all feel better if we know that our treatments not only affect recurrence, but also overall survival, which is a problem more in the elderly patients because you have competing risks of dying from other causes. But if you're looking at a patient without any high-risk features, do you believe that oxalia adds anything? No, I don't. So... Dan referred to ASCO, and there was a really interesting presentation by Kerr looking at Oncotype colon for the first time. It's not available at this point, but can you talk about what was seen there? So Oncotype colon is kind of modeled after this very successful Oncotype DX in breast cancer, which has characteristic features in terms of it's a prognostic and predictive indicator. And I think this is why this test is so widely used in these groups of patients with breast cancer, because you not only identify those patients who are at high risk for recurrence, but also you identify the same group of patients that can benefit from chemotherapy. So this is very strong. Unfortunately, it's not as strong in colon cancer, because the data we saw at ASCO for the stage 2 patient, the gray zone of our treatment, identified this test, this Oncotype DX colon test, as potential prognostic, but not predictive. And they also analyzed a lot of different other molecular factors. And what came out, there were three factors in stage two that were really strongly associated with prognosis. Number one was T4 tumors. I mean, we know T4 tumors are aggressive tumors, and they should probably rather be treated like stage three cancers. Then the patient with defective mismatch repair enzyme system, the MSI high patients or Lynch syndrome patient when we talk about genetic disease, which make up in the end uh, about 15 to 20 percent of all patients with stage 2 disease, those patients have an excellent prognosis and they should not be treated at all. They have overall survival of 90 plus percent. So they would not benefit from chemotherapy. So the middle group, the intermediate risk group of patients, they could potentially benefit from this molecular test, Oncotype DX colon. The problem is, again, that this test might identify the group of patients that has, let's say, 5 to 10% higher risk than others to have a recurrence, but it doesn't tell you whether this patient population will really benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. You know, your response I've heard from a number of investigators, and I understand maybe it's not quite the same as breast cancer, but 
One thing that they did talk about was that the impact of chemotherapy seemed to be relatively the same in the higher and low risk. Now, they could identify patients with 11% risk of recurrence in one group and a 22% risk of recurrence in the others. But according to what they said, quote, the chemotherapy would have the same relative risk reduction. So it seems to me that if you had a patient like this and you could say, well, your baseline risk is 11% and we can apply, you know, whatever number you want to use, 30% or whatever risk reduction to it, as opposed to 22% with that same risk reduction, you really do come out with some, it seems to me, would have been useful numbers. Yeah, you know, the problem, Neil, is that when they talked about the 11 and 22%, this included patients T4 and the DMMR and PMMR patients. So when you now look at, they presented some graphs where they split this actually out. And the more refined you get into the low-risk stage 2 population, where you eliminate all the clinical high-risk factors, which might sway your decision anyway in one way or the other, the flatter the curve is for the recurrence score. So the actual benefit is actually lower. And so it's going to be interesting. And I'm kind of watchful waiting to see how the oncological community will perceive this test. It's not a home run. It's not as home run as breast cancer. Um, we had a patient advocate actually sitting right next to me at the ASCA presentation. And when I kind of said, so would you take it? She said, of course, I would take it right away. I would pay for it in this situation. So it could be that this will be demanded by patients in the end. I'm not quite sure we really understand exactly what the treatment decisions will be afterwards, you know, and would we ever give a high-risk patient Fox? although we know that might not translate in overall survival benefit, would we resort to 5 if you or I'm It's going to be interesting to see reactions of the oncology community out there. We are always happy to see tools that allow us to be better in our treatment decisions. That's no question about that. And in the end, it's going to be a learning process for us and for me personally. Well, it's interesting if you think back to the breast cancer scenario, that first presentation of Oncotype, I think it was in 2004 by Soon Paik, nobody did anything after that, that first year. The next year, there was another presentation. Again, not too many people using it. It took two or three years before it kind of worked its way to where it is right now. Dan, do you use calcium and magnesium in your patients getting oxali? Are you going to use it in this lady? Neil, I have not. Um, <laughs> so, Axel, would you like to tell them about what you presented at ASCA, or maybe you were there, Dan, and whether you would use or offer calcium and magnesium to this woman? So the calcium magnesium, and we actually had a discussion today about that, is one of the most kind of marred points in oncology, in oncology recently because of the data from the CONCEPT trial, which Neil, you and I discussed actually as an emergency session right. more or less because we want to create awareness, don't do it, don't do it. And we probably did a pretty good job because no one did it anymore. And now that we know that it does not And you're talking about response. the initial report suggesting maybe less anti-tumor effect if you use exactly. it. Exactly. So we had and an, that washed kind of, away when you took another look at it. Yeah, I took another look at it, and we now have some explanation what happened when the DSMB looked at the data. And in the independent radiologic review, there's absolutely no difference in response rate with or without calcium magnesium. And then we tested calcium magnesium in the adjuvant setting in a placebo-controlled trial. We presented some data last year and this year. So it does really help in terms of preventing or reducing the number of patients having severe cumulative neurotoxicity. And actually, it, while it doesn't help against these cold-induced sense neuropathies, it does help against the muscle spasms and jaw spasms some patients really suffer from. 
And so I would recommend using it in clinical practice now after we've resolve the erroneous issue of that it does impair efficacy. In order to convince the oncological community, we're actually currently initiating another placebo-controlled trial, calcium-magnesium, in the adjuvant setting in oxaloplatin, because I think if the data really hold up and they seem to be very strong, this is something that can really change the standard of care for patients with colorectal cancer and other diseases. So specifically, would you offer it to this lady? Yes, I would. You know, it's interesting, Phil Glenn, who was presenting the cases to Dan Haller, had a patient who'd gotten prior adjuvant therapy with oxaliplatin and said, gee, she had a terrible time with these muscle cramps. And, you know, that was actually the biggest problem this patient had with the first time she got oxali chemo. And so we chatted about this, and he wants to retreat her, and so now he's going to try it with a calcium magnesium. I guess it was seen to be pretty effective. No, it was actually, it was a very strong, very dramatic effect when I looked at the data, because we had a placebo-controlled trial, and last year we presented the analysis from an investigator perception of neurotoxicity, and this year we actually looked at the patient-reported outcomes, and I mean, patients know what they're feeling, and they can tell us a lot about, you know, what's happening. So there were, in placebo-controlled trial, there was a dramatic reduction of muscle cramps. And I don't know whether it's the calcium and the magnesium. It doesn't affect every patient, but those patients who are affected by it, they really suffer. And they, as you said, sometimes say this is the worst of the chemotherapy. So hearing all this, Dan, any thoughts? Well, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to use it. (laughs) I mean, she just started her therapy this week, and she breezed through her day one cycles. But, I mean, my feeling on these patients is... I mean, I've seen a number of patients develop neuropathy after we've stopped the oxaliplatin. And, you know, that's very hard. For some of these patients, this is a lifelong or many-year burden that they have to carry with them and live with. So again, all of my patients who I'm looking at, particularly my early stage, stage 2 patients, I would like to find ways to reduce that neuropathy, and I'd also like to find ways of identifying the patient early so you can stop the oxaliplatin because I think your major benefit comes from the 5-FU leucovorin. Let me give you another point. I mean, we are currently embarking on an international collaboration to reduce the number of cycles in adjuvant therapy with Farfax. And this is the so-called IDEA group, International Duration Evaluation of Oxaliplatin, of adjuvant therapy, with a focus on three versus six months of oxaliplatin, which can only be addressed in an international collaboration because since it's a non-inferiority trial, you have to be very sure about what you're doing. You can't just stop chemotherapy halfway through without knowing whether or not you take some treatment benefit away from these patients. So we really need 10,500, 12,000 patients. Um, Fortunately, there are four trials ongoing or planned. We have an Italian trial, which has this concept, three versus six months, a Scottish trial, a French trial, and the CLGB will actually start a trial this year. And we'll all pool the data. All these groups have a contract with a data center at NCTG, Dan Sargent at Mayo Clinic, and they all will give us the individual patient data so that we at the end of the day, in about three years, we'll have 10,500 patients and we'll know whether three months of oxaliplatin are as good as six months of oxaliplatin, which could really change the whole world in terms of side effects we see and duration of adjuvant therapy. And I guess if it turns out that six months is better, then the calcium magnesium becomes even more important. That's definitely true. And so far, again, outside of a clinical trial, no one should really 
do that. You know, you should shoot for six months because that's where the data are. Having said that, every one of us will be more kind of willing to draw box our plan or reduce it for the last two, three cycles because, you know, it gets tougher and tougher to push patients through, let's say, the nine, 10, 12 cycles. Any sense about or any data in terms of when you use calcium and magnesium, whether or not the fraction of patients getting farther increases? You know, the data that we had with the adjoint trial that was presented kind of tainted by the fact that we had to stop it midway through because of the concept trial data. So we're not able to explore this issue. I would anticipate, since neurotoxicity is one of the reasons to go off oxaplatin, that if we can reliably reduce oxaplatin and neurotoxicity, that patients could be staying on longer. Would this be able to translate into better efficacy if we really need six months of therapy? Could well be. I mean, it could well be that the addition of calcium magnesium in the adjuvant setting can actually lead to, let's say, 0.5% higher cure rate. So that's why these cancer control symptom trials are actually very important to conduct.